This week, uh, our city has been, Greater Charleston area has been through an incredible trauma. This happened with the North Charleston Police Department and the Scott family. Um, I've been incredibly moved by the response of this man who was shot, his family, a very gospel-oriented response. Um, there are many people who are hurting over this. Uh, this is a very difficult time. You know that you're in the spotlight when you pick up the Wall Street Journal on Thursday and we're on the front page. The North Charleston Mayor and his council on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. So this is a very important time and uh, I just want to have a special prayer now for the, the, the Scott family, for the officers involved, and the whole North Charleston Police Department and, and, and for all of us in this city. So let's, let's pray. Lord, we are uh, your people who claim to be Jesus' followers, and we thank you that because you, Lord Christ, are the mediator between God and man, we can come to you in prayer in the name of Jesus. And Lord, we pray for our, our city. We, we know that, that there are issues that are hurting many people. We pray for the Scott family especially. We pray for the North Charleston Police Department. We pray that, Lord, your people, the, the Bible says, Jesus, you said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. I pray that we, as your people, whether it's in any level of this culture, we would enter into places and speak peace because we know the Prince of Peace. Not peace at any price. Because you also tell us, that, in Micah, that we are, to, to, we are to pursue and love justice and righteousness and to walk humbly with God. So we, we understand there is justice, and even in a fallen world, but we also understand that we are to walk humbly with you. We know that the Bible says that wisdom from above is first of all pure and then peace-loving or peacemaking. So Lord, let us be pure-hearted peacemakers. And may the gospel go out, Lord, in ways that we are not uh, even aware of or can't even fathom, that you would bring um, a sense of, uh, of gospel orientation to our hearts during these days. So we thank you and we praise you uh, that you're the king and, and God, let l people with, um, th that are good thinkers, that deal with issues rationally, um, continually speak into this situation, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text this morning is going to be 1 Timothy 6, 20 and 21. As we conclude this stewardship emphasis today and next week, Paul is writing to Timothy, who is working with the young church in Ephesus, and he's saying, Timothy, here's the way you live, here's the way you instruct, here's the way you appoint elders, here's the way you appoint deacons, here's the way you deal with widows, here's the way you deal with elders who have been accused of wrongdoing, here's the way you do this and this and this, but it's all built upon the gospel of grace. It's all built upon the apostolic message of the cross. It's all built upon the reality of Christ. And so as it says in chapter 20 and 21, or 6, 20, 21, oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. So I'll deal with part of the passage this week and part next week. He says, Timothy, you've received a deposit that's been entrusted to you. A steward is someone who's received a gift and he's to use that gift 
with an understanding that he will give an account for the way he's lived his life. And so as believers in the Lord Christ, as people who believe that the Holy Spirit has gifted every child of God, we live with a sense of joyful responsibility, of glad sobriety. And so Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, you guard, you guard the deposit that's been entrusted to you. What a great statement. You, you guard the deposit that's been given to you. You don't live for yourself, you live for the kingdom. You've been called into fellowship with the triune God by the work of Christ upon the cross. You've been given the Holy Spirit, so you guard the deposit entrusted to you. So I'm gonna mention three things this morning, three ways we guard this deposit that has been so graciously entrusted to us. The first is this. You find people in your life, a church body, a group within the church that has a deep concern and love for your welfare in the Lord. I love this, the way this little verse starts. Oh, Timothy. It's a word of pathos. Oh, Timothy. It's a term of passion. Oh, Timothy. Oh, Timothy. Paul, if, I think if Paul took a personality test, he would have been very clearly on the thinking end of the scale, but as God deals with him, this is one of his first letters, or this is one of his last letters, but in one of his first letters, you see this, this outflowing empathy and compassion for people. In the book of 1 Thessalonians, which is Paul's, maybe his first or second letter, but in 1 Thessalonians, this is what he says. I'm just going to read some verses in this chapter 2 and a verse in chapter 3. Chapter 2, listen to the pathos. He says, he says verse 7, Chapter 2, we were gentle among you like a nursing mother caring for her children, so being affectionately desirous of you, or we loved you so much, Timothy. We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our very lives as well. On down, verse 11, for you know how like a father with his children, pathos, compassion, we exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you in his own kingdom and glory. Chapter 2, verse 18. Because we wanted to come to you again and again, but, 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 but I, Paul, was hindered by Satan. For what is our hope or our joy or our crown of boasting before the Lord at his coming? Is it not you? Verse 20, for you are our glory and our joy. And I'm, I'm, see, if I'm, if I'm to go strong and finish well, I've got to have people who surround me and who love me and say to me, you know, your welfare in the Lord is a point of boasting for me. You are my small group, my, you are my hope, my glory, my crown. You've got to have that. In chapter 3, this very cerebral man, Paul says this, verse 5, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. You say, well, Paul, Paul what you? I thought God's word never turns void. You're right. I thought you trusted the leadership of God to build the church. I do. But there, here's this, this pathos. This, I didn't want to think that I've labored in vain. It hurts to love people. It hurts when people walk away from the Lord. It, it just hurt. It hurts when relationships break. 
Like I said last week, all these little babies, we dedicated this beautiful little baby girl, had a little baby boy in the last hour, and, 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 and every time I hold a baby, look at a baby, I think this baby has the ability to absolutely build and encourage so many people and to break the hearts of so many people. To love is to hurt, but to love is to live. And Paul says this, verse 8, for now we really live if you're standing fast in the Lord. Look at your community group, look at your small group, look at your men's, your women's group, look at your children, you're trying to build Christ. Now I really live if you're standing firm in the Lord. Man, that's what I want. So, so if, I'm, if I'm to go strong and finish well, I've got to have people who have a pathos over my own spirit. I tell our men frequently on Friday morning, I said, who, who are your two o'clock in the morning Waffle House friends? You know, Waffle House is open 365 24 hours a day, right? So what happens if your world falls apart and you've got to talk to somebody at 2 o'clock in the morning? Who do you call? You need those people. You need community. I'm always mesmerized by the account in the Gospels in Mark 2 where Jesus is teaching and you can't even get close to the house and there's a paralyzed man who has four buddies and they're going to take him to be in front of Jesus because the rumor is he heals people. And so this Jewish teacher, this peripatetic rabbi, they get to the house. They can't get close to the house. And so they tenderly strap his body. And they pull the pallet up to the top of the roof. And they remove the tiles. And they get a corner each. And they lower the man down. And it says, Jesus looked up. And when Jesus saw their faith. That's what's interesting. Their, plural, their faith. And I thought, who's carrying me in times of trouble? I need community. This is something that didn't hit me until a few years ago. should have much sooner. The reason we believe in community primarily is because God is Trinitarian. God has always been Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in loving relationship with what I call the happy land of the Trinity, a place of joy. And so he made us to be relational people. And so Paul here, the thinker, says, oh, Timothy, oh, Timothy, who's carrying you in times of need? Who who do you meet in the morning? See, some people just don't get it. I read this four years ago and just put it in a file and peeled it this week. Uh, A Taiwanese woman, wealthy Taiwanese woman, was unable to find a husband. And so this week she married herself. True story. 30-year-old, had photographs taken of herself in a wedding dress, and married herself in a lavish testimony or ceremony before a number of friends before whisking herself off to a honeymoon in Australia. My working experience are in good shape. My finances are good. I couldn't find someone, so I thought I would just marry myself. I'm the most important person in the world. Did she pay for two? All you can eat? Breakfast buffets? I don't know. What do you do with that? Think about this. It's just bizarre. In Japan today, there is a phenomenon. Japan is a country of 126 million, and their birth replacement is like 0.8. Japan is just like this population-wise. Incredible social issues. But there's a, a group of primarily young men, and they're called the Haikikomori, Haikikomori uh, which are people who, in their 20s and 30s, who are extremely socially withdrawn, uh, they don't, some of them don't leave their houses for years. 
It affects 500,000 to 2.6 million Japanese young people. That's a broad demographic swipe. They don't leave their house. They live with their parents. Um, they exhibit the following symptoms. They can be extremely depressed, obsessive-compulsive, addicted to the Internet. Uh, it's a social phenomenon. It's a horrible problem. They don't get it. And what's interesting is they've established centers all over major cities in Japan where these young men can go for support, but the centers have to be staffed by people who are gracious, caring, and believe in the importance of relationship. And I thought, how, how many of us don't get it? I'm telling you, if you're going to finish well, you've got to have people in your life who are stretcher bearers. And it's got to be a certain type of people. In 1 Corinthians 15, the passage that we read last week in part about the resurrection of Christ, Paul talks about about the resurrection, and he says this in verse 32. He, he says, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. That's the slogan of people. He says, you know, if there's no ultimate truth, if Christ isn't risen from the dead, then it's every man for himself. Just do your own thing. He says, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. In other words, if you live that way and live for yourself, you're going to be corrupted. No matter how, what you say, if your best friends believe that, they're going to corrupt good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. For, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. He says, if, if, you're, if your most intimate friends, if, if their theme in life is not the chief of the man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, if their theme in life is eat and drink and do what you want to because tomorrow we may die and it makes no difference. If that's the way your best friends live, they're going to pull you down. So I'm saying the friendships we have must be of a certain caliber. They've got to be centered on the reality of Christ and his word. That's why Hebrews says, 3 says, see to it, brother, see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. Just see to it that no one has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. To love is to hurt. But listen, if you're going to go strong, you've got to have people that say about you, like Paul said about Timothy, oh, Timothy. The second thing, if we're going to go strong and finish well, we've got to stay on message. Paul says, he says, Timothy, guard the good deposit that has been given to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing this, some have swerved from the faith. He says about this error in the early church at Ephesus, we're not sure what the error was, but it involved this, verse 4 of chapter 1. It says, these people devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God, which is by faith. In other words, they talked about irreverent babble, contradictions. They didn't talk about the apostolic preaching of the cross, they didn't talk about the glory of Christ. The book of Colossians deals with this issue. In Colossians chapter 2, listen to this. Paul says, I, hope, I want to, for you to have the rich assurance of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Christ is the source of all wisdom and knowledge. 
Verse 8 through 10, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily, and you've been filled in him who's the head of all authority and rule. The issue is Christ. Elemental spirits, the demonic spirits, the issue is Christ. And he says this regarding these people. He says in chapter 2, verse 18 and 19. It's not coming up. He says this. If you can show it, verses 18 and 19, that'd be good. Um, He says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, which is beating your body up, tearing it down, and the worship of angels going into great detail about visions and being puffed up and not holding to fast to the head from whom the whole body is nourished and knit together. He says these people go into great detail about visions and angels and this and that, and they beat themselves to make themselves more spiritual. He says that they're really not about, about the reality of Christ. They've lost connection with the head. Understand this. Whenever anyone makes a dream or a vision or anything else anywhere close to the authority of Scripture, they go wrong. I love history. I love church history. I can go through church history after church history after church history segment where people said they downgraded the personal work of Christ. They downgraded the Word of God, and and they, they, they gave greater credence to a vision or a dream or whatever, and they always end up in trouble. We believe Scripture alone is supreme. Let me give you some examples. Second century, a guy named Montanus. Montanus said correctly, because you can say this is true about any generation, the church is not as pure as it should be. For God to really work in us, we have to have a very, very pure church. And so he said, the repentance that people are giving needs to be longer, more pronounced, and more exacting. And he seduced some people. And then he said, on top of that, you don't need the apostolic testimony of Scripture. You just need me because the Holy Spirit speaks through me. I am his mouthpiece. Forget Paul. You've got me. Forget Peter. You've got me. Forget John. You've got me. And they lived to incredible error. Fast forward 14 centuries. A group called the Anabaptists. I am a Baptist by heritage. By conviction, the Anabaptist means meant to rebaptize. They read the Bible, says we believe the Bible teaches that you're baptized after you're saved. I agree with that. But there were some offshoots of the Anabaptists that gave the Anabaptist a horrific name. There was a guy named John of Leiden. He was a Dutch guy. He moved to Munster, Germany. He said, I'm the mouthpiece of God. He seduced some people, brought them with him under the Anabaptist umbrella, introduced polygamy, all types of bizarre sexual practices, advocated clothing optional days on a warm day in Germany, which thankfully weren't that many. Um, and, and because of that, he gave that movement a horrific name to a degree. The next century, there's a group that came to about called the Quakers. And I grew up with Quakers, nice people. But uh, in fact, I used to go to Guilford College basketball game. Their mascot was the Fighting Quakers. That, does that not, that's a little, that's a, 
That's a what you call an oxymoron, fighting, anyway, fighting Quakers. But there was, a, there was a splinter group in the Quaker movement that believed that you didn't need the Bible. You just got people together and they would start quaking. And some would stand up and say, God is telling me this, you didn't need the Bible. It led to incredible error. There are certain splinter groups, many, 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 most Pentecostals are wonderful people, but there are some Pentecostals today who say you don't need the Bible, you need, you need certain prophets to speak with great authority and power. Yeah, you always end up in error. So what I'm saying is this, church. If you're to go strong, you've got to stay on message. You've got to keep be people of the book. You've got to say, give me the word of God. So for us, as we think about this, one, and I'll wave this flag again, we can do that incrementally by assuming the gospel and assuming the glory of Christ instead of talking about it. There's one, of, one of the great books of our day is a book called The Cross and Christian Ministry by D.A. Carson. And in, in this book, he, I'm just going to read a couple of paragraphs. He says that in our day and age, the lesson is, this lesson is important for so many Christians who identify themselves with some single issue, good issue. But their point of identification, self-identification, the focus of their minds, their hearts, and their energy, what occupies them is something else other than the gospel of Christ and the glory of all he is for us. I have heard a Mennonite leader assess his own movement this way. One generation of Mennonites cherished the gospel and believed the entailment of the gospel lay in certain social and political commitments. The next generation assumed the gospel and emphasized the social and political commitments. The present generation identifies itself with the social and political commitments while the gospel is variously confessed or disowned. It no longer lies at the heart of the belief system of some who call themselves Mennonites. New paragraph. Whether or not this Mennonite leader was fair in his assessment, it is certainly a salutary warning for evangelicals at large. We are already at the stage where many leaders simply assume the message of the cross, but no longer lay much emphasis on it. Their focus is elsewhere. And a few, it seems to me, are in danger of distancing themselves from major components of the message of the cross. A couple of examples. So this, this week we've had this horrible situation in North Charleston. And I, I told some men on Friday morning, I said, the gospel of Christ destroys all racism, all economic elitism, all regional elitism. It, it, just, it just destroys it. Because the foot, the foot of the cross, the ground is, is level. I said in Ephesians chapter 2, there is this former Pharisee named Paul uh, who wrote these stirring words, starting in verse 14. He says, For he himself is our peace, Jesus, who has made both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He's talking about Jew and Gentile. Now let me tell you something. Paul was a Pharisee. He did not eat with Gentiles. They were just, and they became the apostles of the Gentiles. Amazing. And he says here, and the dividing wall is destroyed. There's no longer Jew and Gentile. We're all one in Christ. He says that Christ made peace through his cross, and he made, made in himself one new man. God wants a multi-ethnic 
church made up of people from every tribe, tongue, people, nation who are one in Christ. Galatians 3, there's neither male nor female, slave nor free, Jew nor Greek in Christ. We are all one in him. So I, I said, this, any type of, of, of superiority is destroyed by the glory of the cross. You see, this is an outworking. The death of racism for us is destroyed by the glory of the cross. I mentioned the uh, essay written by C.S. Lewis in the midst of World War II when England was being pounded every night by the Luftwaffe. And really the survival of England was, was, in, the, was in the balance. And, and Lewis says that he went to the church, his church, and that his, his pastor preached a sermon saying that all nationalities feel that they are the best, whether it's the Dutch or the Germans or the French or the Russians or the British. He said, but in the case of the British, he said, it happens to be true. And Lewis wrote this essay, said, I'm using the word asked as a brain donkey, okay? Lewis said, did that make him an ass? He said, absolutely. He said, in my personal opinion, a lovable ass, but an ass all the same. So, you know, you can understand, I, I, I believe in American exceptionalism for a number of reasons, but you got to be very careful that you don't trumpet. See, 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 the cross destroys jingoism. Racism. But these things are the outworking of understanding the glory of Jesus. I believe strongly in the sanctity of human life. I believe all men and women, boys and girls, inside the womb and outside the womb, deserve respect and Christian love. I believe abortion is a horrible sin. That the bumper sticker that was so popular years ago was an unarguable fact. Abortion stops a beating heart. I mean, you can't argue with that. And so we, will, we believe in preserving life. That life is a gift from God. That children are heritage from the Lord. But see, that, that is a result, a manifestation of the glory and grandeur of the triune God, who's the great creator king, who spoke the world into being, who's the originator of life, his glory shines on the cross. It's an outworking of that. So I, I preach the gospel first, then I talk about these issues. Do you get that? So we've got to always keep the message central. Martin Luther died at age 62 in 1546. Luther said this, I love this quote, late in his life. This comes from Vine 51 of his works, but it is, this, is, this is just vintage Luther. He said, take myself as an example. I opposed indulgences and all the papist, but never with force. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Armsdorff, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word of God did everything. Again, he says later, I did nothing. I simply let the word of God do its work. And I just say, you know, I think the Bible says, just, just let the Bible go in your life. The Bible slays us. And our prejudices or in our lethargy, it just slays us. In our unrepentance, it slays us. So you just preach the Bible. You let it out. It's the word of God taken by the Holy Spirit and made efficacious in our life. I love the Bible. So, so 
got to do that. Number three, you understand, we have received a deposit, been entrusted with a deposit. Every person here who's a Christ follower, you've been commissioned into the army of the living God. You've received gifts, and you're to use those gifts to advance his kingdom, to bless people around you. You don't live for yourself. It's interesting. The Wall Street Journal last week had an article with a guy named Peter Singer. Peter Singer said, I, I believe, he's an ethicist from Australia, teaches at Princeton, who is an advocate of infanticide. He said, you should be able to almost take the life of a child once it's born if you don't want it. He's at Princeton. It's amazing. And, and Peter Singer says, I think it would be good if everybody gave 10% of their money to charitable causes or more. I was like, why? Why? He cannot, there's no answer to why. See, we, we, we say, you know, you've been given a charge, a deposit, a responsibility, live. You know, when Paul is writing his last letter, he's trying to stir Timothy up, and so he walks down memory lane with Timothy. And he says this, he says, Timothy, Verse 4, chapter 1, 2 Timothy. As I remember your tears, I long to see you and that you may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, the faith that dwelt first in your grandmama Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure it dwells in you. For this reason, I remind you to stir into a flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. So he says, Timothy, let me tell you something. Your grandmama lived for Christ. Your mama lived for Christ. And I'm your spiritual father. I've taught you. I've trained you. I've wooed you. I've birthed you, in essence. I laid my hands upon you with other elders and prayed that God would give to you. You do not live for yourself alone. You be a man of courage and dignity. See, we need to walk down history lane. We have received an incredible heritage. Don't squander. More about that next week. Last Monday, Duke won the national championship. And this is a great story. So this 18-year-old guy, he may be 19 now, he's named uh, Grayson Allen. So my, my brother loves Duke basketball, and he says, you know, there's, there's a guy they've signed that's going to be a great guy in the future. His name is Grayson Allen. He's... They say he's got a 37.5-inch vertical jump. He's got a killer shot. And I go, okay. So I watched him a couple times. The guy's on the bench. I call my brother. and says, why isn't he playing? And he says, well, he's just not playing yet. And so started playing a little bit, started playing here, started playing there, and had a couple of good games. Uh, first couple of games of the tournament, didn't play much at all. Monday night, if you watch the game, it was a great game. just came out way too late, but I, I made it through. M Monday night this great Wisconsin team in the second half comes out and they're ahead by nine points. Duke's two big guys are on the bench with four fouls. And really, Wisconsin is about to metaphorically plunge the dagger in Duke's heart and, and win the NCAA championship. And this, this guy comes off the bench, six, four and a half, and takes the game over. He played, he played like a kamikaze on caffeine. You know? slashing, blocking shots, scored eight points in about four minutes, carried Duke for five minutes, 
bridged the gap. They came in. Duke won the national championship. He won the game. He and another freshman, but primarily I. He, he won the game. So, so I'm sitting there thinking, wow. The next day I read the article about one of his coaches who said, you know, this guy came here. Uh, he's got great talent. He was the first one to practice and the last one to leave every day. First one to practice, last one to leave. So I thought, you know, so, so, so when the absolute sacrifice was needed, he was ready to go. He could have easily sat there and said, hey, I'm a McDonald's All-American. I'm not getting playing time. I'm upset about this and sitting on the bench like this. But he didn't. And I thought, may I be that kind of guy? May I be ready to go when the master calls? May I be ready? That's why I like 1 Peter 3.15 says, you know, always be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have and do it with gentleness and respect. But always be ready. See, a steward is ready. A steward is responsible. A steward is ready to go. That's the way we need to live. Well, let's stand and we'll close in prayer. Thank you. So, Lord, uh, today uh, we, we pray that you would let us go strong, that you would, uh, we look at this passage very soberly when Paul cries out, Oh, Timothy, God, thank you for people in our lives that really pray for us and care for us and have done so for years and years and who cry out uh, our, and, and say to us, oh, guard the good deposit that's been entrusted to you. God, may we do that to people around us. May we do that to our, in our small groups. And may we do that in our families and our men's, women's groups. And may we do that for generations yet to come. Oh, God, give us that type of shepherding spirit. I pray, Lord, that we would always keep on task as far as the message. I pray that we'd be people who love the glory of the cross and the apostolic message, and that we would live there, and that we would love the Bible, and that you, Holy Spirit, would take the word of God and, and elevate the person of Christ and the glory of the cross in our lives. I, I pray, Lord, that we'd be, understand the concept of true stewardship, and, and that we'd be ready to go, ready to go forward, ready to step out, ready to do the right thing, so, Lord, may we get up every day and pray, our Father who art in heaven, kingdom come. Lead us not to temptation. Give us our daily bread. Lord, we want to be saturated with the character of God in whose name we pray. Amen.